Our Father and our God, we bow before you with thankful hearts that you allow us the privilege to come and to worship you in truth and in your spirit. And we pray, Father, that your spirit would come in power today to give us understanding of your truth of this glorious salvation that has been imparted to us by your grace and mercy. We pray, Father, that we might grow in grace so that we might become more like our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We pray, Father, that you would be with those who are unable to be with us this day. You know their reasons and their deeds, and we pray that you minister to them and bring them back to us quickly. Pray for our sister churches throughout the world as the gospel is proclaimed. We pray, Father, that many would come into your kingdom. And all that would be said and done this day would be pleasing in your sight. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Take your Bibles and turn again with me to Romans chapter 3. And we will read the same passage we read last week, verses 21 through 26. Romans chapter 3, beginning with verse 21. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, which is through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace, the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth to be a propitiation by his blood through faith, to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance God has passed over the sins that were previously committed, to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus." I want us to continue to study God's grace in saving sinners. As stated last week, this is the fundamental difference between Christianity and other religions. Most say, as far as theologians, that justification by faith alone was the major controversy during the Reformation. That, of course, was the Reformers and the Roman Catholic Church. And there were, as we know, the five solas proclaimed by the Reformers. Sola Scripture, which is Scripture alone. Sola Christa, which is Christ alone. Sola Fidea, faith alone. Sola Gracia, grace alone. And Sola Del Gloria, glory to God alone. And, of course, we as a church hold to all five of those solas. Now, today I want us to zero in particularly on the critical point of sola fidel, faith alone, which we see clearly in this particular passage that we just read. Now, of course, Martin Luther proclaimed faith alone adamantly. It was the central proclamation of his doctrines that he proclaimed to the Roman Catholic Church. And, of course, that brought about the serious conflict between him and the Roman Catholic Church. He, of course, was speaking to the question, how is a person justified in the sight of God? Now, restate this particular article upon which the church stands or falls. It signifies whether a church is a church on this particular doctrine because it touches at the very heart and the soul of the gospel of grace for it reveals how a sinner is redeemed. And we must understand that this doctrine is relatively easy to grasp in our minds. It really isn't that complicated. But for this great truth to be accepted and loved by the heart is something that is completely different. So you can have it in your mind, but what I'm preaching and hoping that you understand that it must be in your heart. Now, when we truly understand this doctrine, it will be the controlling element 
of our faith by which we daily will live before God. Living a faith in living grace, in grace. And of course, we live by grace, by the power of the Holy Spirit. So it's so important that we understand this truth. Now, don't misunderstand me. We are not saved by a doctrine. It isn't having faith in the doctrine of justification by faith alone that redeems anyone. We are redeemed by grace alone and Christ alone. Of course, understanding this doctrine helps us to know whether we've truly experienced this salvation. It is what this doctrine points to that is so central. What is the doctrine pointing to? Well, it's pointing to Jesus Christ. It's pointing to God's grace. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And we must understand that without the power of God unto salvation, there is no salvation. So remember the answer to the question, how can an unjust person Stand before a holy God on judgment day. Remember that I pointed out last week concerning our sins. We've all committed millions of sins. And therefore, all of those sins are recorded in God's book. We could say in God's mind. We know that God doesn't have a book like what we have. Again, words are important, just as we heard in our conference this past week. We use words to be able to explain truth. And so therefore, when we say that they are recorded in God's book, we know that they're in God's mind. In other words, he doesn't forget a single sin that we have committed. And we must answer for every single sin that we have committed. And we know that we were born sinners. That's our nature. No one ever had to teach us how to sin. It's something that we naturally do because we are sinners. And we understand that, and it frustrates us, especially if we're unconverted, it frustrates us more. But even as a Christian, it frustrates us that we continue to sin, knowing that we have the power to overcome sin. But in the lost state, you don't have no power to overcome the sin that you were involved in. Only by the grace are we able to overcome sin in our life. Now, just like Adam, we have broken God's law which says, thou shall not. And what? We did. We did that, that which God said we should not do, and we continue to do that which God says we shall not do. We continue to break his law. And we saw this past weekend the importance of God's law, and we see one aspect of God's law, and I think it was clearly taught to us that the three divisions of the law and one aspect of God's law is to, of course to point out that we are sinners and that we need Christ so that we are saved and one of the most important points in this discussion of justification is how does it come about how do we receive it when I say justification by faith I'm using a form of speech in other words, there's a little word in there that is very important, and that is by. By points to the cause, to the means by which justification takes place. Now, this is very important because the Roman Catholic Church requires faith. And we need to understand when they say faith, they're meaning something different than when we say faith. And it's very important that we understand that. They believe that when an infant is born and the priest sprinkles water on that infant, which they, of course, called baptism. We do not call it baptism. Baptism, as you know, the Greek word itself means to immerse. And I thought uh, Dr. Jim Renahan did a very good job in speaking about baptism yesterday, even though I'd love for him to expound a little bit more on it. He didn't have the time. But anyway... Uh, they believe that when that baby is sprinkled, that grace is actually infused into the soul of that infant. Now, why does that infant, they believe, need grace infused into the soul? Because of original sin. They believe that that grace that is infused into the soul of the infant removes original sin. 
So they believe that the priest has the power to infuse into that soul of that infant grace. And it puts it in a neutral state. Now, as a result, they believe that the infant is placed in what is called a state of grace. And they are kept in that state of grace until some point that infant grows up and commits a grievous sin, which is called a mortal sin. Now, mortal sin is a sin so serious that it actually kills the grace that was infused into that infant by the priest in the soul of that individual. Now, listen very closely. When this infant becomes older, an adult, and commits a mortal sin, they say that he still has faith, but he loses grace of justification. So in other words, he's no longer right with God. He's no longer innocent before God. And they teach that this person can be in a state of mortal sin, but still has true faith. Hopefully you're beginning to see the difference in how we define faith and they define faith. But they may not be justified because of this mortal sin. So he must be restored to that state of grace. Why? Because he committed mortal sin. So they teach that he must come through what the Council of Trent, and the Council of Trent was in the mid-1500s, they called the second plank of justification for those who have made shipwreck of their faith. Now this leads to another question I know that just came into your mind. What is the world, what in the world is the second plank of justification? Now I'm glad you asked that question and I want to answer it. Well, the Roman Catholic Church defines it as sacraments of penance. You may have heard that before, the sacrament of penance also caused a great controversy in the 1600s with Martin Luther King, I mean Martin Luther, not King, uh, and of course one of the friars, German friar, whose name was Tetzel. Tetzel was going around and he was peddling indulgence, which are linked to the sacrament of penance. They were saying, and there's a slogan that came about, as soon as the gold in the castic rings, the castic was an offering box, the soul, the rescued soul to heaven springs. So as soon as the gold in the castic rings, the rescued soul to heaven springs. That's what they actually believed. In other words, you could give enough offering to where they believed that that soul was spring from purgatory into heaven. So therefore, that's how they raised money. He would say, if you give more money, you can get your loved ones out of purgatory and you can spring them into heaven. Now, if a person had committed a moral sin, now, I know you may be thinking, well, what are those moral sins? Well, what they would call the big sins. In other words, breaking the Ten Commandments. Now, in one sense, every sin falls under breaking the Ten Commandments. Whatever sin you commit, you can find it in one of the Ten Commandments. But they emphasize what we would say the big sins, I guess you would call them. Suicide, induced abortion, rape, or divorce. For that person to be restored into salvation, those sins had to be repented of and penance had to be made so that that person might be restored into the state of grace. Now, of course, they had to avail themselves to the sacrament of penance, which, of course, is performed by the priest. Now, penance had several elements. First, there was sacramental confession. 
the person had to go to the priest, and you've seen it in movies before, you know, they have the little box, and they'd go into the little box, and one side the priest would be on, and they would be on the other side, so that the priest supposedly didn't know who it was, and they would have to confess to the priest their mortal sins, so that the priest might say, ego tega asab, which I asab you of your sins. And when he would pronounce them being forgiven of their sins, then so-called they would be forgiven. Now, for that person to be stored to the state of grace, he also was required to perform works of satisfaction. And those were called congruous merits, which rested upon that prior grace that they had received earlier. So the Roman Catholic Church says it is a merit but doesn't earn any reward. It's a lesser kind of merit. In other words, it was enough to make it fitting for God to restore that person back into the position that they were in before as far as justification. So faith and confession and priestly absolution was required as well as the work of satisfaction. Again, they said that these works of satisfaction do not provide that congruent merit, which is a merit that simply restores them back into that position of state of grace. So it would be called a lesser merit, which rests upon the prior reception of grace. And therefore, all of this, of course, rests upon what the priest said to them. Now, according to the Roman Catholic Church, the means by which justification takes place is chiefly ceremonial. In other words, first, baptism, second, through the sacrament of penance. And these are two of the seven sacraments of the church. Now, after sharing all that, I know many of you just want to line up and become a Roman Catholic, right? I hope after saying that, you just scratch your head, how in the world do they even understand all that they must do? Well, they don't understand it. They just do what they are told to do by the priest. Now, one of the major differences we have in the Roman Catholic Church has to do with that particular word, faith. The Reformers taught that faith is the means by which the righteousness of Christ is given to sinners. Again, words are important. And we have to find the words in the scripture to find those words that are important so that we might rightly use them. And again, going back to Romans chapter 3, verse 25, it says, Whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood, what? Through faith. Now, already stated, the Roman Catholic Church believes that grace is infused. Whereas Paul says what? It is an imputation. Now, the question must be answered, does grace come from infusion or imputation? Well, we know that the Roman Catholic Church believes that it comes through infusion of grace, through the sacraments, through what the priest does. Grace is the qualitative infusion and poured into the soul of the person by the priest. So that person has the righteousness of Christ poured into his soul. So the Roman Catholic does believe that without the righteousness of Christ, there is no justification. Now, we would agree with that, that without the righteousness of Christ, there is no justification. So we agree with them, but yet we reject the idea that it is infused in us, that it is poured into us or into our soul as the basis of justification. Now, some wrongly criticize the Roman Catholic Church by saying they believe that justification is only by works, as if there's no need for the work of Christ. No, they believe in the work of Christ. They have always taught that Jesus Christ is essential for salvation. But the thing that they do not say is that faith 
alone. And that's where the major difference come in. Now the question is, how is the merit of Jesus Christ, his works, appropriated to sinners? They answer the question with the sacrament, the seven sacraments of the church. And of course, those that are infused as far as the righteousness of Christ into the soul. Now, then the individual, as a result of having that infused, he begins to cooperate with that grace that is infused. And he must cooperate to such a degree that he becomes actually righteous in himself. Now, see, there's another difference. We do not believe that we actually become righteous in ourselves. No, what? We are covered by the righteousness of Christ. We do not become righteous in ourselves, And we have to understand the difference there. We do not cooperate with the grace that is put in us so that we become righteous. No, we are righteous in our standing and our standing in Christ. Now again, in the Council of Trent, it declared that true righteousness inherits within the individual. So they believe that this righteousness that is poured in them makes them righteous. So we have to be very careful in understanding that, that the righteousness comes through the help and the assistance of the grace of Christ. It's not only their own strength, but it's the person in cooperation with this. So once Christ is infused, his grace is infused into their soul, the sinner cooperates with it to a degree. And that sinner actually becomes righteous. And then and only then does God declare a person righteous. Now this is why the Roman Catholic Church has the doctrine of purgatory. You've heard of purgatory before. And many Catholics spend they believe, thousands of years in purgatory undergoing a process of uh, purification of their soul. Now, why do they have to go through a progress of purification of their soul? Well, the reason they have to do that is because they have to become holy enough to be declared just. See, this again not only do they believe that they have to do all these works here on earth, they believe that even in purgatory, because they're not purified enough, they're not holy enough, that in uh, purgatory they continue to do these works to be declared just. And then also the people here on earth, just as uh, the penance is concerned, all the money that they would give would help them be even more purified. And, of course, the Reformers believed that the Bible taught imputation instead of infusion. As we see in this particular passage, beginning there in verse 21, even the righteousness of God, which is through faith in what? Not in the priest, not in the sacraments, but what? In Christ, Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference... For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely, how? Again, by his grace through the redemption that is where? In Christ Jesus, whom God set forth to be a propitiation by his blood through, again, faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance God has passed over the sins that were previously committed. So we see very clearly in this passage that God justifies sinners. Now how does he justify sinners? All who have faith by imputation of Christ's righteousness. So what is imputation? Well, imputation is involved in transferring of something from one person to another account. It is the righteousness of Jesus Christ, Paul tells us, that is transferred. 
it is transferred to the believer's account by God, not by a priest, not by some ceremony act. When God looks at the believer in legal terms, as we saw last week, he doesn't see the believer's sin. Why? Because the righteousness of Christ covers it and Christ himself has paid for it. So he views that person under the righteousness of Christ. And God justifies sinners by making them one with Christ. As the scripture speaks of that we are in unity with Christ. We become his brother. We are joined to Christ as one. We not only are covered by his righteousness, so therefore we are counted as righteous, but we are actually one with Christ, just as a person when they get married, and we've got two marriages coming up very soon, two weddings, and they will be joined together as what? As one. And likewise, we are joined with Christ as one. We are with Christ and in Christ. And when we are joined to Christ, then therefore we have that righteousness of God. But there's another concept involved in this imputation, and that is the atonement which is central to salvation. Now, we just heard a passage there in Leviticus chapter 16, a very lengthy passage that spoke about the atonement, the most holy day of the year, the day of atonement, and all that had to take place by the Old Testament priests so that the people might be forgiven of their sin. Now, of course, it was, it was not all that was done that set them free from their sin, it's all that it was pointing to, and it was pointing to what? Christ. And as you read that passage, I don't know if it jumped out to you or not, but as you read that passage, you hear over and over again what? Blood, blood, blood. It's a bloody religion. Now what is the blood all pointing to? All the blood is pointing to is Christ, and that he would shed his blood for the remission of sins. So therefore, there was the suffering of Christ on the cross in the place of sinners. We call that what? Substitutionary atonement. That Christ actually took our place. That we should have been the ones that were placed on the cross and put to death for our sins. But Christ took our place and took our sins upon himself and died in our place. And his death was vicarious, in the place of another, as the sin bearer of Israel. He was called also the lamb without blemish to whom God imputes the sins of his people. And imputation means to reckon to their account. So when Christ is married, united to his people, their sins are imputed to him, to his account, and his righteousness is accounted to theirs as they are married and they are in that oneness with Jesus Christ. So therefore, Leviticus 16, the Day of Atonement, points to that very fact that would come in the future. And the priest would lay his hand, as we saw, on one goat, which was called the escape goat, which the sins would be symbolically placed on that goat, and that goat would be sent out to the wilderness as if our sins were done away with. And then the other goat, what happened to it, children, as he read the passage? The other goat would be sacrificed for the sins of the people. And then the blood, what was done with it? It would be sprinkled, first of all, on the mercy seat, there in the most holy of holies, and then that blood also would be what? Sprinkled upon the people to show again that the blood cleanses them from all unrighteousness. So therefore, it was a beautiful picture of what would happen when the suffering servant would come who bears the sins of his people, who is the substitutionary atonement for his people, and that God transfers their guilt to him, and he paid for their guilt. So when Jesus Christ died on the cross, he took the negative judgment. He took God's wrath, as we see there very clearly in verse 25, 
whom God set forth to be propitiation. There the word propitiation is speaking about God's wrath being satisfied. That Jesus Christ satisfied divine justice. God punished our sins when he punished Christ on the cross because he transferred our sins to Christ. Now, if you ask one of our older children, what did Jesus do for you? He's been taught and he's learned enough in Sunday school and then at home to be able to say, Jesus died on the cross for my sins. Now, this is very true, but that's not all of it. That's only part of it. There's more. If the negative penalty is all that he took to justify the ungodly, then Christ could have come down from heaven and gone straight to the cross and then returned to glory if all that needed to be done was the negative, the taking away of our sins. But Scripture tells us what? That Jesus Christ was born of a woman. He submitted to the law. He lived his whole entire life in exact obedience, perfect obedience, to every point that his heavenly Father required of him and required of his people. Now why? Because this is the active obedience of salvation that earns us glorification. I mean, have you ever wondered why Jesus was told, or Jesus told John the Baptist that he must baptize him? I mean, Jesus was not a sinner. He had no sins to repent of. So why did he have to be baptized to demonstrate that he was cleansed from sin? Because he was not a sinner. So why did he need baptism? Well... This is another aspect of imputation. We must realize that every act of Jesus was an obedience of the Father and done out of love for the Father and is imputed to his people. He acted on their behalf. So therefore, Jesus willingly received a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins that was a sign that identified him with sin of those who he came to save. It was an identification with you and me. Now, of course, I've taught and preached on the active and passive obedience of Christ before. Jesus Christ not only paid for the negative, but he also paid for the positive, achieving us the perfect righteousness that we must have. Now, if all Jesus did was pay for our guilt, that would only deliver us from hell. He would not have purchased us for heaven. I mean, sin would be removed, but there would still be a lack of positive obedience to get us into heaven. Our goal is to be in heaven with Christ. So therefore, positive obedience is needed to commend us before God in justice. There must be the righteousness to be rewarded so that we are granted eternal life. Now, of course, our righteousness is what? You've heard it many, many times from this pulpit. Our righteousness is what, children? Filthy rags, unacceptable to God. So therefore, we need another righteousness, a perfect righteousness. Jesus Christ both died and lives for us. That's the main point of the gospel. Not only were our sins transferred to him there at Calvary, but his righteousness is imputed to us by grace. It's imputed to us. It's not infused. It's imputed that we are counted as righteous. We are not righteous in and of ourselves. We do not become righteous in and of ourselves. Our righteousness is in Christ and Christ alone. We are united to him. We are married to him. Therefore, when God judges us and declares us just, he does it because what? Because Jesus Christ is just. Because we are in Christ by what? By faith. 
Faith is the tool and grace links us to Christ. So no faith, no salvation. Where does the faith come from? I repeat again, Ephesians 2. It is a what? Gift from God. So do you see how important it is to pray that God would give you the gift of faith if you are unconverted? But not only are you to pray that God would give you the gift of faith if you're unconverted, we as Christians must pray that God would give lost sinners the gift of faith. Prayer is so important that we cry out to God that he would be merciful and give the gift of faith to sinners. Now this righteousness which we have been looking at, called by theologians, alien righteousness. Now, children, you know what alien is because you like to play all these kinds of games today that have all these aliens that you have to deal with. Uh, foreign, we would say. So it's a righteousness that we would say that is outside of ourself. It's a righteousness that we have to look to another for. It's not our righteousness, as I repeat. So if I held to the view of the Roman Catholic Church, then I have to wait for true righteousness manifested itself in me in purgatory for thousands of years. Matter of fact, how long would it take before I'm justified if I'm a Roman Catholic in purgatory? It'd take forever, right? It ain't going to happen, in other words. It'd take forever for it to happen. So here's the good news of the gospel. God justifies sinners without any cause in them, giving them by faith this uniting with Jesus Christ, who is their righteousness, apart from anything that they might seek to earn. That's the only righteousness that God the Father accepts the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ himself. Now, when I say that justification is by faith alone, this is simply a short way of saying that justification by grace alone and Christ alone. See, the only grounds of our justification is the righteousness of Christ. That's the only ground. I cannot emphasize that enough. There is no other grounds than Christ himself, his righteousness, for he is the one that gives us what we need. So God justifies a sinner. How? All who have faith by the imputation of Christ's righteousness. So what is imputation? Well, it involves a transferring of someone, something from one person to the other. So therefore, we have to continue to remember that. What is being transferred? Christ's righteousness to us, our sins to him. And we must never forget that, that he paid for our sin, that he has joined us to himself so that we are married to him, we are united with him, as the scripture over and over says in the New Testament, that we are what? In Christ. And if we are in Christ, then therefore we have his righteousness. Now, it's freely given to sinners. That's another wonderful thing. Freely given. There's nothing we can do to earn it. It's freely given to us by God. But there's one more question I want to ask. What is meant when I say that we are justified by faith? Well, James tells us in 2.19... You believe in God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. Now, most see faith as simply an intellectual assent to a correct idea. I mean, if you ask them, do you believe in Jesus and do you believe that Jesus died for you, they will answer what? Of course I believe that. Doesn't everyone believe that? 
I mean, that doesn't constitute saving faith, even though most people believe that it does. Today, we know that easy believism has bombarded the church, and it has corrupted this doctrine of justification by faith alone. Let me give you an example. Back in October, we had the Go-Tell Crusade. What happened in the Go-Tell Crusade? There were over 2,000 people that, quote, made decisions. Now, I want to tell you something. If 2,000 people would have been truly converted, we would continue to this day see a mighty hand of God working in our area as well as in our churches. Now, I'm not saying that nobody was converted. Don't misunderstand me. But I, what I'm saying is that the majority of those people that, quote, went forward and think that they were converted because of something that they did instead of something God does. Many of them gave mental assent to say that they believed in Jesus Christ and that Jesus Christ died for them. But again, Jesus even says this about the demons, that they believe in God, you do well. The demons tremble. See, we must realize that there is at least three elements to biblical salvation by faith. First, there's what Luther called notia, and that is simply information, that's data. In other words, the, the content of the gospel must be understood. It must be believed intellectually. You must believe that you are a sinner, that Jesus Christ is the Savior, that Jesus Christ went to the cross, and that Jesus Christ died for sins of his people. That's information that you must know. The gospel must be preached. That must be declared for a person to be sent, uh, saved. Second, there's that intellectual assent. In other words, the person must agree to the basic facts of the gospel. He must understand the basic facts of the gospel. That Jesus Christ truly died for my sins. But it isn't simply an exam, passing in an exam. Someone can be aware of this information, they can agree with this information, and still not be saved. See, Satan knows the content of the gospel. Is Satan saved? Well, of course, we know that he's not saved. But he knows the content of the gospel. Now, why? Because possessing only these first two elements will not save anyone. There's a third element that is essential. Faith in a personal relationship, trusting in Jesus Christ. This gift of faith is given to sinners so that they look to Christ alone and to his righteousness. Remember last week I shared, I think it was last week, I shared Charles Spurgeon's testimony. His head was full of knowledge. He'd been taught all of these truths that I've spoken of today. He knew those truths. But was he saved? No. In his own testimony, he says he wasn't saved. But he goes and he hears this country layman, lay preacher, who he said really didn't preach. All he continued to say over and over again, look to Christ, look to Christ, and what happened? God was pleased to give him the gift of faith to where on that particular Sunday he did what? He looked to Christ, and he was saved. A simple exhortation, and God worked in Charles Spurgeon's life and gave him the gift of faith and he believed and he was graciously saved. 
And finally, the doctrine of justification by faith alone is not by faith that is alone. You hear me? The doctrine of justification by faith alone is not by faith that is alone. True faith will rest in Christ alone, and you are really counted righteous by God. And when this happens, you will immediately, necessarily, inevitably produce the fruit of sanctification. Again, you see that in the demoniac. Immediately, what did he want to do? He wanted to follow Jesus, and Jesus told him, go back home and show your family and friends what the Lord has done. So immediately, he was a changed man and was producing fruit of sanctification. See, if there's no fruit bearing, as a result of your justification, it is proof that you have no justification. I want to repeat that. If there is no fruit bearing as a result of your justification, then it proves that you have no justification. Because the idea of faith without fruit of obedience is what James calls what? Dead faith. Not alive faith but dead faith. And dead faith cannot justify anyone because it's dead. A true Christian is what Luther calls fidevia, faith that is alive, a faith that is vital, a faith that shows that itself by its faithfulness. So true saving faith will bring about obedience to God's word. Obedience, as we again saw this past weekend, to what? His law. Thy law I love, is what David said. Why did David love the law of God? Because he had experienced justification. And likewise, if we are justified, we love the law of God. We love God with all, we seek to love Him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We love our neighbor as ourselves. Why? Because we've been justified. We love to be faithful in worship. We love to be faithful in serving. We love to be faithful in witnessing. We love to be faithful in tithing and giving and hating sin and longing to be more holy. All of those are a result of what? Justification. Justification brings about sanctification. But remember, it is this issue, how am I justified? I'm justified not by my own righteousness, not by my own merit, but by the righteousness of Christ and Christ alone at my conversion. And because of this justification, I will live for him who died for me. The Holy Spirit gives us grace which causes us to desire to be like Christ in every single way. Don't think of faith as an act that simply believing something is true. No, it comes from a new heart. And you cannot put a new heart in yourself. The new heart comes from God. It's a heart of faith. And faith flows from a regenerate heart that is now believe, a believing heart. Faith is what a new heart does. It receives all of Christ by grace. And true faith makes such a cross, much of Christ and sees faith as a gift of grace as well. So true faith flows from what? It flows from our unity with Christ and His grace, and it will flow out of obedience as the life of Christ lives in our soul. It is the same Christ that lived on earth in perfect obedience that is flowing out of us. A dead faith is dead because the soul is not joined to Christ who is life Himself. 
a living faith has life because it is joined to Christ who is the life of the soul. Faith comes to us by grace, joins us to Christ, and so we now live a life that is truly a life of grace. Have you experienced this faith that comes by grace? Have you been joined to Christ so that you live a life of grace? Where you know it and others know it. Let us pray. <clears throat> Father, we thank you for this marvelous grace. Grace changes us, grace that motivates us, grace that gives us the ability to continue to look to Christ each and every day. And I pray that if anyone has not experienced this grace, that today would be the day that you would be pleased to bless them with your gift of faith. And I pray for us that are Christians, Father, that we would testify to others of this grace, that we would share the gospel faithfully, and that we would be faithful to pray that you would be pleased to give them the faith so that they might have grace. In this we pray in Christ's name and for his sake.